as we turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, and uh, we come today to verse 25, but let's back it up to verse 24, where Paul says, we've been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, and then this week, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's kind of an obscure word, isn't it? It's kind of a big word, a $64,000 word, propitiation. We've unpacked justification, redemption, and now we get to really the heart of it all, propitiation. We don't talk about it much, at least not compared to our justification and our redemption, which we focused on so far, when in fact, Propitiation, we're going to see, is the source of both our justification and our redemption, and it's by far the least obscure of these three words in the Bible. Its Old Testament equivalent occurs 96 times, and that is the word kafar. Kafar, the Hebrew word, the equivalent of propitiation, which means to pacify to pacify someone's anger. We translate it atonement, which means appeasement. And so we're talking today about the appeasement of the wrath of God. The doctrine of propitiation can enrich your life and all of your relationships probably beyond what you ever thought possible. At least I know that was true with me. It's a richly theological word, but it's also richly practical so much so that it can even improve your marriage. I'm not kidding. It can be even better than the way Garrison Keillor recommends improving your marriage. I don't know if you've ever listened to the Prairie Home Companion on, on NPR, on National Public Radio. One of his spoof advertisements for, is what, for, was what for, uh, he called the deep valley bed. The deep valley bed, the one that sags in the middle, making prolonged marital discord impossible. Would that it were that easy. <laughs> but the deep valley doctrine, you might say, of propitiation can go a long way toward helping with prolonged marital discord. Not to mention with all of your other relationships. Because it means this. It means we no longer have to be afraid of anybody's anger. We no longer have to be afraid of or reactionary to anybody's anger or to be overly threatened or provoked by it. It means that you can be uh, gentle rather you know, than volatile. Like it says in Proverbs 15.1, the gentle answer turns away wrath. And we can do that now because God's wrath has been turned away. Because now that God's wrath has been turned away from us, we can face any other anger without fear or provocation. We can be peaceful through it all rather than volatile if we really understand this doctrine. Let me tee it up with a conversation, the kind of conversation I've heard again and again. I've cut and pasted this from years of uh, marital counseling, many marital counseling sessions. And the question is this, have you ever had a discussion like this with your wife? If you haven't, you probably will if you're not married. Something like this. Let me just read what I wrote down. Just jottings. I wasn't angry at you. Oh, yes, you were. I could see it in your eyes. You could see it in my eyes. Here we go again. Get out the microscope, why don't you? And anyway, you were angry at me first. 
Well, you would be too if I said something like that. Something like what? It's true, isn't it? What's wrong with just mentioning that dinner's always late? And even if I was angry, it doesn't justify your anger. Dinner's always late. You're always late. And a lot of help I get in making dinner. And even if it is always late, it doesn't justify your anger. If you could just see your eyes, they're like daggers when you get mad at me like that. You might as well stab me in the heart. It's killing me. Well, even if my eyes are like daggers, at least it's over in a few seconds, and then you get angry, and I pay for it for weeks. I'm tired of walking on eggshells whenever I just get slightly upset. I'm tired of having to win myself back into your graces. I get angry for weeks, okay days, but it feels like weeks. My anger may be like a dagger, but yours is like a cloud over this house for days and days, a poisonous cloud. And when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. A poisonous cloud. And which is the worst sin, my anger or your bitterness? I'm ready to move on, but you just wallow in it. And that's like a dagger for a whole lot longer. Well, I'm tired of it. My own husband stabs me again and again after all I do around here. A serial stabber. You say your anger's over in a few seconds. Well, so is a shotgun blast. On and on it can go. Where's the deep valley bed when you need it? (laughs) Problem is, when you need it, you don't really want it. What's the problem with that discussion? Well, it wasn't that the dinner was late, nor was it those angry daggers in his eyes, nor her cloud of anger that lasted for days. That wasn't the root problem here. No, it's not the anger that destroys our marriages. It's, uh, there is an abusive anger that can, that can destroy a marriage, but other than the extreme cases, it's often not as much the anger as it is our reaction to anger that's the problem. It's our anger at anger that can turn us into, you know, logs in a fire, and, uh, and under this is often the fear of anger that turns into anger at anger. I don't want to oversimplify things, but often a good part of the problem with anger, at least with many, myself included, is that we're threatened by it. And so we, you know, explode in rage when someone gets angry at us or implode into, you know, depression or bitterness or whatever, or we don't get mad, we just get even, as they say, or we laugh it off or gloss it over because we're so afraid of dealing with it, we sweep it under the the carpet, uh, and of course you bury it alive and not dead, and it grows into this elephant in the living room, uh, and everyone feels it, and no one talks about it until out of nowhere you get divorced or whatever, and it can happen to individuals, and it can happen to churches. Why does anger strike such a raw nerve? Well, many reasons, but a good part of it is this. We don't really have peace with God under it all. We have, you know, we have it objectively on the level of what we think, but maybe not, uh, we don't often have it subjectively on the level of what we feel. We know God's peace doctrinally, but not emotionally. And underneath, without fully realizing it, there are a whole lot of people who feel like God is angry at them. And it can make us so paranoid at the slightest hint of it in other people or so volatile, uh, uh, maybe especially in our closest relationships. Oh, we need this doctrine of propitiation. 
We come today to the heart of what we most deeply need, what the fearful, volatile child in us all most desperately needs, and that is a father who has not turned his back on us. A father who isn't angry. And so it doesn't matter who else is. Which can bring peace to all our relationships. A whole new serenity. Justification gives us a whole new identity. Redemption we've seen gives us a whole new liberty. Propitiation can give us a whole new serenity in life and especially in our relationships. We come today to one of the most important doctrines in all of Scripture. It has a place among the top three, justification, redemption, uh, propitiation. And you could argue that it's number one, given how by, it's by far the least rare, the most frequent of all these words, all through the Scripture, and given that it's one, of the, the one that makes the other two possible. Because propitiation is the basis of our justification and our redemption. The doctrine of what Christ did on the cross, as it says again in Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. So how does it work? Well, I think we all know how it works in our own experience. It's a rare word, but it's not a rare phenomenon. To propitiate means to please someone. It means to please them by, by placating their anger, which many people spend their entire lives trying to do, to please, to propitiate, to placate an angry parent or some significant other. But when you come to see the degree to which the power of the blood has propitiated the wrath of God, the extent to which you have peace with God, you can have a whole new serenity, one that can give you stability in the face of the volatility that will come into our relationships. To handle anger in a way that's constructive and healthy. Let me say it again, when you truly repent and simply accept not just your justification, not just your redemption, but at the heart of it, Christ's propitiation of a wrathful God, it can bring peace that pervades all your relationships, starting with your relationship with him. Now, before we look at how this can make a difference in your life, I'd like to talk about how uh, it often doesn't make a difference, even when we do understand it up here, why we don't enjoy the serenity that peace with God can bring to our hearts and to all our relationships. And that is this. It's often because we can't get over the wrath of God. And sometimes this happens because of unconfessed sin or sin that we continually indulge in. When we choose to live in sin, we can bring like the, the menace of God's wrath back into our lives, the memory of what it's like to live under wrath. And even when we don't live in sin, as long as we have the sinful flesh, there will always be like this haunting memory, or there can be, of what we do deserve that can make us paranoid or touchy or volatile if we don't stay in live contact with this doctrine of propitiation and ultimately we'll see with the blood of Christ. And on top of that, there may be something in our past that makes it difficult to accept that we have peace with God. And our fear of anger can shadow our relationships or our anger. anger. 
And until the Spirit of God uncovered it, I didn't have peace with God, even, even though I was a Christian. Sometimes, uh, and he really spoke to me, and maybe he's done this with you, maybe he needs to do it. For a long time, I knew what it's like to live under the fear of wrath, even as a Christian. And some of you do too. For a lot of people these days, it has to do with early childhood issues that get buried, especially with our mothers or our fathers. When my first father died, it's like death was too abstract for me to really comprehend. And at six years of age, though I didn't put it to words, I felt that he had just abandoned me. Maybe you've experienced something like this too. That he left me so quickly because he was so mad at me. And Though, of course, he wasn't. In fact, in 11th grade, nine years after he died, I had a dream that my father came back from the dead that kind of says it all. The, uh, the whole world found out that he came back to di- from the dead. And of course, everyone wanted to know what it was like on the other side uh, of the grave. But he refused to talk to anyone, even to me. He wouldn't say a word until he could address all of mankind uh, all at once. So they scheduled this global press conference. It took a while to arrange, but when the long-awaited day finally arrived, there he was in the middle of this long table. It was like this long banquet table with people on one side or the other stretched out almost to the horizon, and he was facing the world, and he was in the middle. He was the honored speaker, and dignitaries were stretched out on either side of him, and there was this mass of microphones right in front of him. And finally he stood up and a hush fell over the crowd and he looked out over like this sea of humanity that was in in front of him. And then all of a sudden, it was like he was getting ready to explode and his eyes narrowed and his face grew livid with rage and he screamed, die world. And the whole world went up in a nuclear holocaust. Such an imagination. That's what my mother used to say. Like I said, when my father died, it felt like it must have been because he was really mad at me, though I never put it to words. And I tell you, it took me the longest time to connect with God's love, and God had to reveal these things from my past and and, and heal me deep down before I could do that. And I tell you, It took the longest time, but it's so common these days. These days, there are a lot of people like that, maybe many in this room, who have lost a father or a mother or a close one by death or divorce or drugs or alcohol or imprisonment or abandonment, whose fathers or mothers were depressed or workaholics or just distant, and the child takes it as like this this raging rejection. And on top of that, we've seen that this kind of rejection is what we deserve in our flesh, the rage of God's rejection. And so for many reasons, deep down, especially these days, more and more I've seen it over the last 30, 40 years of ministry, there's a fearful, volatile child in a lot of people who's wondering when the other shoe's going to drop. And when there's a conflict with significant others, it feels like the whole world is going up in a nuclear explosion. The whole world is coming to an end. And it's by faith in this doctrine of propitiation 
that can keep this fear at bay and even take it away so you can become less fearful, less volatile, and part of the solution and not part of the problem. And we'll see practically how to do that in just a bit. How does it work in practice? Well, let me illustrate it in another way. Soon after my father destroyed the world uh, in that dream, I had another dream. I was being given a tour of the universe starting at the very beginning of creation. I saw the history of the creation and I saw it all come into being. God speaks through our dreams. We see this all through scripture. He speaks in many different ways. I can't even put to to words except uh, what it was like, but except to say it was so very, very, very good. I couldn't believe it. And then I saw planet Earth, the good Earth. It's like this precious jewel against the black velvet of deep space. Glistening like a pearl, this liquid pearl of blue and white just shimmering uh, in the darkness. It was breathtaking. It was like heart-rendingly beautiful. And then the voice said, said this, and then sin entered the world. And from the North Pole, this black ooze, you know, started to cover the world, kind of like Sherwin-Williams, except it wasn't paint. It was like tar, slowly but surely, until the light went out. And as great as was my terror at my father's anger the night before, Far greater was my grief over my sin that so deserved that anger because of what I had done to the world. And what do you do about that? What do you do about a world that's covered with sin, full of people who really do deserve to die, deserve nuclear wrath? What do you do about a heart that, that, uh, that's covered with sin like the world, a heart that's full of sin, a heart that deserves to die? What do you do about the fearful child in you that just won't believe that God's not mad, that knows what you deserve? Well, this moves us from the wrath of God to the blood of Christ. Back to verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, an appeasement, a placating in his blood. It means that the nuclear force of God's wrath was spent on that one man when he shed his blood. As though he was the one that ruined the world and it was no longer us. And it wasn't just as though he was covered, you know, with the ooze that covered the world. He he took it all on himself. He became it in our behalf. He He was tarred and feathered and set on fire by the wrath of God. He became the sin that provokes uh, the wrath of a holy God whose wrath was spent on him. His blood covered the earth and now he's a propitiated God through the blood of Christ, a satisfied judge who is pleased now to welcome us unconditionally with not a hint of a cloud as his children. 
because his wrath was spent on him. How does it work out in practice? Well, it's the propitiation in his blood, it says, by faith that can bring a whole new serenity because the Bible says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7, and brings peace with God. And yet so many Christians who have confessed their sins still feel condemned. They're plagued with guilt. I go in and out of this which generalizes so easily into anxiety or fear or anger or fear of anger or, and they become so fearful or so volatile. They view God as this perpetually, as uh, Chuck Swindoll said, perpetually peeved deity who nails them, who goes around with a stick and the nail in the end of it that nails them the minute they get out of line. And they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, all because they've not realized the power of the blood to propitiate the wrath of God. And it's not surprising because the precious blood of Christ is being mentioned less and less in Christian circles today. Crosses are being taken out of churches. It's not at Willow Creek and many other churches. And so the blood is less and less a part of our faith. It's like R.A. Torrey said in this classic work, How to Receive Fullness of Power. He said there are some who today who are trying to devise a theology that leaves out the blood of Christ. But Christianity without atoning blood is a Christianity without mercy for the sinner, without settled peace for the conscience, without genuine forgiveness, without justification, without cleansing, without boldness in approaching God, without power. Christianity without the blood of Christ is not Christianity but the devil's own counterfeit. If we desire fullness of power in in the Christian life and service, we must know the power of the blood of Christ. For it is that which brings us pardon and peace and power through the propitiation of a wrathful God. You know, the devil's out to destroy our marriages and our families and our churches. We know how true that is, don't we? He's a roaring lion, as Peter said, seeking someone to devour And one of his favorite tactics is to shadow you with the fear of wrath that you no longer have to fear. When we can overcome him, as it says in Revelation 21, 11, by the blood of the lamb. So how do you get the rubber on the road to make this happen, to realize this by faith? Well, my mother taught me this at an early age. She taught me what it means to invoke the power of the blood by faith. She was a widow at the time, and I was nine years old. We were living in the Glenary Castle in Colorado Springs where the navigators have their headquarters, and we were living in the third-floor apartment there just across the hall from a room that we found out later was used years ago for various occultic rituals, and there were still demonic uh, attachments that uh, came and went, though... uh, We didn't know it until my mother encountered it in me. One night I had a dream. Here we go again. This is the last one. But it shows how you get the rubber on the road. It was a kind of parable. I I found myself in a world with no people. 
Rather, it consisted of nothing but pipes. Their functions were completely beyond me. The whole world was like this machine, this massive uh, mechanical complex, something like an oil uh, oil refinery, and there was no place for me. And there I was, and I had this little spade in my hand, a spade that was just for play, but my task in life, on pain of death if I failed, my appointed task was to move this huge mountain of dirt, like this Mount Everest of dirt, to the other side of the earth, climbing over and under the pipes, one little shovel full at a time. It was the only way to please the pipes, which would not speak, nor would they move to accommodate me in the slightest, nor would they in any way acknowledge my existence, no matter how hard I worked to please them. And so after a while, I just dropped the spade and began sobbing uncontrollably. I was in complete despair. Each of those pipes were like this cold shoulder, cold anger, and the world was packed with them, and I couldn't please them. No matter how long I worked to move that mountain, it couldn't be done, though I had to do it. That's life without the blood of Christ. Next thing I remember, I was looking up into my mother's face. Apparently, I was screaming and crying. It was really her face. I was waking up, but it was like I was drugged, and I couldn't really wake up, and I was paralyzed. I could hardly move, and all I could do was to cry. But there were, I could see such love in her eyes, but also such anger. But she wasn't angry at me. I wanted her so much, but I was fighting her, and she was shaking me, and her lips were moving as like in slow motion. And I heard, this, I heard uh, these vague, muffled sounds coming from her lips, and slowly it became more and more clear. She was speaking in a way I'd never heard her speak before. She was saying, in the name of Jesus, be gone. The blood of Christ, in Jesus' name, by his blood, by his shed blood, you have no rights over my child. Be gone. She said it over and over until, and quoted scripture and various other things, prayed, until I woke up. And slowly I came to myself, and finally I was resting, resting in her arms, and I couldn't stop saying, I love you, Mommy, I love you, I love you, Mommy. Really, I was in the arms of the Father, thanks to the blood of Christ. The pipes had turned into the arms of the Father through the blood of the Lamb. And there was no fear. And now there is a gracious God, and we have a gracious God, and we say, I, we, I love you, Father, Abba, Father, I love you, I love you. Thanks to the blood of Christ. And we sing, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Because there is pardon for sin and a peace that abideth through the blood of Christ. Because he's a propitiated God. We can know peace with God through the blood of Christ. Who died to move the mountain for us. To fill the pipes and turn them into everlasting arms. If we truly repent of what he of what we have done and simply accept what he has done. It's not surprising that Martin Luther said man's first need 
is to find a gracious God. Remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Under all of those is the need to find a gracious God. Because the child in us, the fearful, volatile child in us all is yearning for a father with whom there is no shadow of turning. So it doesn't matter who else turns from you. A father who's not angry at you. And so it doesn't matter who else is angry at you. And it doesn't matter now who your father or mother were because you have a savior whose precious blood gave you a whole new father who with blood ties closer than next of kin were adopted into an eternal family through the propitiation in his blood through faith. My mother was wielding it that night by faith. The power of the blood of Christ over all our fear. So, what do you do when they say, I wasn't angry at you, and you say, oh yes you were, I could see it in your eyes, and on and on it goes. Bottom line is this, everything flows from this. You do, in the heat of the moment, what you've been long since practicing in your daily devotions. You draw near to him. By faith you enter into the hollow of his mighty hand through the blood of Christ. And there in the arms of the Father where you're no longer fearful, no longer volatile, you can become a, a peacemaker, not a peacebreaker. Subtle but powerful thing by faith. How do you make this happen in practice? Well, I find that more than anything else, it's by faith through prayer. Julie and I find that it's helpful to confess these truths together of justification and redemption and propitiation, to do that through supplication. We, we use a prayer that, uh, that you might want to consider. Uh, when the battle gets fierce, we say, we better pray the warfare prayer. <laughs> and we pray it back and forth, one paragraph at a time. It puts it all together, all the theology that we've been unpacking here in this greatest paragraph in the Bible, a prayer that centers on the blood of Christ. We prayed it over each of our churches, just like my mother prayed over me, to ward off the powers of darkness. And I think now's the time to do it here. These days more than ever, as Paul said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, 12. According to Ephesians 6.12, the Democrats are not our enemies. The lawlessness that's in the streets these days is not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. No, we struggle not against flesh and blood these days more than ever. Can't you just feel it? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, he says, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that's our enemy who knows how to press all our buttons. Forces that are arrayed against us now more than any other time in recent history. So I think it's high time that we lift up what we call the warfare prayer to dispel the powers of darkness. It's a longer prayer, so you'll need to focus. In fact, to do that, so that we can really focus, why don't you all stand together?
Paul said it's a propitiation in his blood through faith because there's power in his blood through the faith, through faith, through the faith especially that we exercise through prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in praise and worship before you. We cover ourselves with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as our protection. We surrender ourselves completely and unreservedly in every area of our lives to you. We take a stand against all the workings of Satan that would hinder us in our prayer life. We address ourselves only to the true and living God and refuse any involvement of Satan in our prayers. Satan, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to leave our presence with all your demons. We bring the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ between us. Heavenly Father, we worship you and give you praise. We recognize that you are worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise. We renew our allegiance to you and pray that the blessed Holy Spirit would enable us in this time of prayer. We are thankful, Heavenly Father, that you have loved us from past eternity and that you sent Jesus Christ into the world to die as our substitute. We're thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ came as our representative and that through him you have completely forgiven us. You have adopted us into your family. You have assumed all responsibility for us. You have given us eternal life. You have given us the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we are now justified. We are thankful that in him you have made us complete and that you have offered yourself to be our daily help and strength. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we might see how great you are and how complete your provision is for this day. We're thankful that the victory the Lord Jesus Christ won for us on the cross and in his resurrection has been given to us and that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. We take our place with him in the heavenlies and recognize by faith that all wicked spirits and Satan himself are under our feet. We declare therefore that Satan and his wicked spirits are subject to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the armor you have provided. We put on the girdle of truth the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of peace, and the helmet of salvation. We lift up the shield of faith against all the fiery darts of the enemy, and we take in our hand the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. We choose to use your word against all the forces of evil in our lives. We put on this armor and live and pray in complete dependence upon you, blessed Holy Spirit. We are grateful, Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ spoiled all principalities and powers and made a show of them openly and triumphed over them in himself. We claim all that victory for our lives today. We reject all the insinuations and accusations and the temptations of Satan. We affirm that the word of God is true and we choose to live today in light of God's word. We choose, Heavenly Father, to live in obedience to you and in fellowship with yourself. Open our eyes and show us the areas of our lives that do not please you. Work in us to cleanse us from all ground that would give Satan a foothold against us. We do in every way stand into all that it means to be your adopted children, and we welcome the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In every way we stand into the victory of the ascension and the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby all the principalities and powers were made subject to him. We claim our place in Christ as victorious with him over all the enemies of our soul. Blessed Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us, come into our lives, break down every idol, and cast out every foe. We're thankful, Heavenly Father, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, 
to the casting down of imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and to bring every thought into obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in our own lives today, we tear down the strongholds of Satan and we smash the plans of Satan that have been formed against us. We tear down the strongholds of Satan against our minds and we surrender our minds to you, blessed Holy Spirit. We affirm, Heavenly Father, that you've not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We break and smash the strongholds of Satan formed against our emotions today, and we give our emotions to you. We smash the strongholds of Satan formed against our wills today, and we give our will to you to choose and make the right decisions of faith. We smash the strongholds of Satan formed against our bodies today, and we give our bodies to you, recognizing that we are your temple We rejoice in your mercy and goodness. Heavenly Father, we pray that now and through this day you would strengthen and enlighten us. Show us the way Satan is hindering and tempting and lying and distorting the truth in our lives. Enable us to be the kind of people that would please you. Enable us to be aggressive in prayer and faith. Enable us to be aggressive mentally, to think about and practice your word and to give you your rightful place in our lives. Again, we cover ourselves with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and pray that you, blessed Holy Spirit, would bring all the work of the crucifixion, all the work of the resurrection, all the work of the glorification, and all the work of Pentecost into our lives today. We surrender ourselves to you. We refuse to be discouraged. You are the God of all hope. You have proven your power by resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead. And we claim in every way this victory over all satanic forces in our lives. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's sing together of what all this makes possible.